Loved, cherished, comforted. Welcome to the podcast ministry of Our Resolute Hope, where you will find grace, not just a concept or a doctrine of grace, but a person, a person whose name is Jesus, a person who brings hope, a determined, resolute hope that can sustain you and empower you to live courageously in this fallen world. Join us now as we learn more about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. Beloved, we are just blessed that you've joined us today on this episode of the Our Resolute Hope podcast. My name is John Russin. And if you listened to us before, you already know that. And I'm here with my dear friend, Frank Friedman. And dear friend, it is a good day in the kingdom, isn't it? Yes, it is every day a good day when we have him. That's right. Frank, we are going to take a little bit of a break beginning today from our ongoing series on pivotal words in scripture. And we're going to focus instead on a pivotal issue not only in society, but specifically in the church, we all struggle with it. And that is the issue of affairs, or that's a kind word, adultery. And Frank, you threw this topic out and it's kind of intimidating. And so tell us, why did you choose this topic? Well, John, as a pastor for over 40 years, doing a lot of pastoral counseling, it's one thing to stand on a platform and teach God's word. It's quite another to get down in the weeds of a fallen world and help people in their individual journeys, especially when there's been failure. And I've had to unfortunately deal with a lot of people who were not faithful in their marriage. And I've just walked with people through deep and agonizing pain as they have either wounded their spouse through an affair or been the one who's been wounded. And so for the one who gets wounded, there's this hurt and agony, this rejection in a very real way. It's worse than a divorce in many ways, John. If, if somebody came to their spouse and said, look, I want a divorce, it hurts. It's like a knife to the gut. But when somebody cheats, there's so much deception and the deception hurts worse than a knife to the gut. It's like a, a chainsaw to the gut. And so seeing all this pain, John, what I wanted to do was do a couple of podcasts and sort of go after this thing preemptively. If we could help somebody who maybe is in a fair to realize that they're holding an empty bag it's ultimately not going to satisfy them. It's going to bring a heap of destruction to their lives, their families' lives, the kids' lives. And then also preemptively to maybe keep people from an affair. And I thought we'd do that by maybe first exploring a biblical philosophy of marriage, marriage theory. What is this thing all about? Because if we don't have a correct understanding, we'll go into this marriage with a lot of faulty expectations that will foster a spirit of emptiness, anger, hurt towards the spouse, which then can help us justify what we're going to do. Because after all, we've got to get our needs met. And if they're not meeting them, 
uh, shame on them, you know? Yeah, and, boy, you and, know, you, you mentioned, <laughs> Frank, uh, entering naively into marriage. Who doesn't? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my good, you know, who doesn't enter into marriage with a, a long laundry list of expectations? And eventually, every one of those expectations can sort oh. of fall flat. And it's just staggering at how naive and starry-eyed we can be. Mm. And, you know, I don't know how many fairy tale weddings I've seen on television or in magazines. And that's just fantasy, Frank. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about fantasy in this series, aren't we? Yes, sir. And, you know, that's why, John, I don't marry anybody unless they go through premarital counseling. I want to equip them with as many tools as I can, because beyond the starry-eyed, goo-goo-eyed, wonderful wedding ceremony comes a marriage. And plugging and trotting through life that can throw us a lot of hurts and frustrations. And then what I thought we'd do, John, is sort of get real practical and just give people some things to think about and do in a way to help a fair proof the marriage. So I'm looking forward to this. I pray the Holy Spirit will use it. And it's a little different from what we normally do, but I really think the spirit is in this. Well, you know, it's really not that different, Frank, because as you and I have talked over the years, a couple of years we've done this, we want the focus of this ministry to really address the trenches of life type issues. And when you talked about going from the mountaintop of a wedding ceremony to the trench of everyday life as a married couple, there can be a pretty big contrast. So I think it kind of fits. It's just a little different from what we've usually covered. Now, I want to begin, Frank, with having you verify some data for me, because I'm a data guy. And this is what I found, that one in three or some studies, one in four husbands will cheat and one in six wives will cheat. So two things jumped out at me, Frank. One, this is really common. And two, it's not confined to either men or women. They both share this. So has this been your experience in counseling? Absolutely, John. I think the culture, and especially the church culture, thinks it's a masculine issue only. But the masculine guy is having an affair with a feminine girl. So, you know, it's everybody's potential problem. We have to realize that we were designed to get life from God. I know we'll talk about this a little more in depth in a minute, but if we don't get life from God, we're going to get life from people. And then that's going to set us up when the person we choose to get life from doesn't provide the life. And then we're going to go looking for the life. And so it's a big, big, deal that we come to understand how God designed us and what marriage was really intended by him to be. If we get that wrong, we're going to be very unfulfilled. And as human beings, we don't like being unfulfilled. So what I would say, John, is remember in Proverbs where it says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. This is a message for everybody, even those with what they consider are vibrant, healthy marriages, because we have a destroyer out there and he hates us and he's going to try to trip us up. Right. Now, you have made some allusions just now, Frank, that seem to imply that affairs, adultery, they're choices that people make, you know, wrong choices. But being the geeky science guy I am, I wanted to see what the science folks were saying. And this is what I found. This is a quote. 
brain architecture makes it possible to have deep feelings of attachment for one partner, intense romantic love for another, and sex drive for even more partners. So this particular article blamed our adultery on the architecture of our brain. And how about this one? That there can be a specific gene that makes you more likely to cheat. And then, of course, get divorced because a whole lot of affairs lead to divorces. So the bottom line, Frank, is that society is not only mainstreaming it by not calling it adultery, they're calling it an affair, which is a flowery word, but they're not even blaming it on the choices of the people. They're blaming it on genetics. They're blaming it on brain architecture, which basically says they're blaming it on your parents. Bottom line, anyone or anything but you is responsible. Have you seen this? Am I misrepresenting this at all? No, John, you're right on. And we need to point out to our listeners when we read statistics like that, this is the science of man. And a lot of times, you know, as we get into science, it verifies the Bible. But in this case, we need to point out this is an opportunity that man is presenting to avoid blame. And we need to point out to all our listeners that the blame game is nothing new. It began way back in the Garden of Eden when men and women fell into sin. And then they were brought into the light of God and their sin was exposed. And instantly the man said, well, it's the woman. She's the problem. She ate from the fruit and tempted me. And then he even went so far as to say the woman you gave me. It's ultimately your fault, God, for creating that woman. And so, John, we have to realize that scripture, it says point blank marriage is to be faithful between two people. It's a covenant. And we know that we are tempted to violate that covenant. But Father's word says this, no temptation has overtaken you such as is common to man. We all get tempted to act contrary to who we are. He says, but God is faithful to provide a way out. So that when we fall into sin, when we commit adultery, and I think we should stop calling it an affair. That's the world's way of putting nicety on this thing. It's ugly. It's destructive. Affair sounds so romantic. When we commit adultery, we are violating our covenant vow, and we are going to cause a lot of destruction. It doesn't say No temptation has overtaken you. God's provided a way out except for adultery. There it's, you know, you're just doing what you have to do as a human being. No, no, no. It refers to all temptation. And so God's word is very clear. You may feel like you can't stop or you might feel like you're the helpless victim of lust. Uh, But the truth is you're on the hook to make a choice. But it's not just, John, a rote conformity. One of the things we have to realize when it comes to sin, sin has a motive. All behavior has a motive. And the greater issue is, why are we choosing to do that? And I've yet to find the person that isn't committing adultery because they're trying to fill up 
what they believe is a very empty life experience on their part. Wow. You mentioned uh, filling up, Frank, and we have a children's book. And I know it's a little off the topic here. No, I think Not it's right really. on. It's right on the topic, man. And the children's book is called I Was Wrong, But God Made Me Right. And in there, you use an analogy for people in cups. But before we get to there, I want to go back, as we usually do, to the root of our problem. You know, I love Genesis because that defines the foundation for so many aspects of our lives. And we need to look at how man was created by our loving father. So I want to jump in and just make remind our listeners at this point, Genesis 2, the Lord formed man out of the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And to me, Frank, that says that from the very first day, we have no life at all without God. He's life in himself. John 5 tells us that. And he gave us life. Without his life in us, we're kind of like a clay soldiers, like those terracotta soldiers they found in China in the 1970s. So everything we need for life, we are to get from God as our source. So that's what I wanted to say before I turn you loose to talk about the cups and the fullness and the analogy that you drew so well in that children's book. Well, you know, John, it's funny. In the counseling arena, I used to make people, adults, read that book out loud. And I remember there was a 75, 76-year-old woman in my office one day, and she was about halfway through the book. It's called I Was Wrong, But God Made Me Right. And she starts crying and she says, this is not a children's book. <laughs> and, and no, I it's said, really not. <laughs> I said, well, ma'am, it really is a children's book. The problem is it's 75 years old. You're just too adult with God and you're finally learning to be a child. John, that book where you mentioned we are little cups. God is like a great big faucet who doesn't have a handle to turn him off. And he fills our cups so full that our cups overflow. That is taken right from scripture. Second Corinthians chapter four says, we have this treasure in our earthen vessels, earthen vessels, just clay pots, cups, that the power might be made manifest that it is from God and not from ourselves. So very simply, God made a little cup, made him a man and a woman. But here's the key. He breathed his own life into those cups. The cups were full. They came to each other full. When we start to talk about this, John, this is almost like we've entered, you know, that old television show, The Twilight Zone. Or the outer limits, you know. Remember the music from that? D D D D. Oh yes, you're dating yourself, bro. I'm much I, too young to remember those series. Well, let's think about it. I cannot imagine a man and a woman in a marital union with no control issues, no manipulation, no selfishness. You see, when Adam and Eve came to each other, they came to each other completely full with no 
need. Their need was met by God so they could come full to each other simply to express fullness to each other, to express love with no hook. Of course, like we said, John, that's a science fiction because Adam and Eve fell into sin. They lost the life of God. Their cup became empty. And now what does an empty cup want to do more than anything else? Get full. And we go on a search to find this person that fills our cup better than anybody else. And we say, I choose you to fill my cup for the rest of my life. And we don't even realize what we're saying, John. We're really saying, I choose you to be my God, to replace the God that I lost in my original design. And I just put them on a treadmill to perform for me that's going to get higher and higher and faster and faster because they can never be God to me. And then I set myself up for incredible frustration because they can never be God to me. And then what I just might do is say, well, you know what? This isn't working. Let me find somebody else who's prettier, more hard-bodied, more fun, who gets me. And before you know it, my wandering eyes are going to try to find another faucet that can never be a faucet. And I'm set up to do it again. So that's kind of, John, what's the foundation for why we're having so much adultery, if you will. Yes, sir. And uh, I think right there, brother, you went from speaking into meddling, but <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's okay. You know, as, as you're talking, I'm thinking back to Genesis chapter two. My mind always goes back to Genesis because it's the root of so many things. And when you have a man drawing life from God and you have a woman drawing life from God, God called that very good. Genesis mm. 1, the very last verse in that chapter, Genesis 1, he said, this is very good. Mm -hmm. Now, there's not a whole lot of detail, uh, mm -hmm. as I remember, about the dynamics of their relationship. Scripture just says they were naked and not ashamed. So, of course, being the geeky guy I am, naked, of course, means naked, open, uncovered, accepted, welcome. That's the idea that comes across. But this one really got me, not ashamed. Mm. Really, literally, Frank, in Hebrew means not pale. So I look wow. at this and go, wow, these people were bold. They were bright. Their personalities were fully expressed. Frank, this is like nothing we've ever imagined before. Mm. Fully unique individuals expressing themselves completely exactly as God created them in an open, accepting, welcoming, uncovered, nothing hidden relationship. Mm. This is not only what was paradise in Genesis chapters one and two, but Frank, if I get scripture right, when Christ is our life and we turn to him as our faucet and our cup is full, this is what we can experience in our mm -hmm. marriage today. Am I get that right? I think that's exactly right, John. We get restored to our original design. But we have to realize that what happened in Genesis 3 with that quote-unquote fall better termed, I believe, a rebellion or a declaration of independence. 
where man basically said, I'll get my needs met my own way. And of course, in the garden, he chose Eve over God. Uh, she's a better life giver. And so what happened is instantly we lost life from God. Our cups became empty. And now we look to other people to fill our cup. And as one writer well said, he said, when we come to a marriage relationship, apart from God, it's like two ticks with no dog. And we will suck the life out of each other when there's no life there to give. So what happens, John, is we're set up for failure with the way that we approach marriage. And the church is guilty of this. In our wedding ceremonies, we'll say, do you accept this spouse as your completer? And we Ouch. sit there and say, yes, of course. Well, we just said, do you accept this spouse to be your God? No human being is another human being's completer. And so we are set up for failure because we're not doing the work of preparing people for marriage. I am choosing to marry a faulty, weak, frail human being that I'm trusting is going to look to God and not to me for their source of life. And then they're trusting me that I'm going to look to God instead of them as my source of life. So in Christ, we can be restored to God as life, have our cups full, and then come to each other from a position of fullness instead of a position of neediness. We've got to get marriage theory settled. No human being can ever be what God can be to us. And if we think that, we're setting ourselves up for failure, we're setting ourselves up to go looking for adultery to find another person. This is what Romans 1 is all about. Failing to worship God, they worship the creature. And you know, I think far too many people look at that passage, John, and look historically and think, oh, that's like Egypt worshiping the dog and India worshiping the cow. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's so much worse than that. It's man worshiping woman and the woman worshiping the man. And it's not going to work, but we're slow learners. And so we <laughs> go try to make it work with someone else. That's right. <laughs> I'm going to pound that square peg into a round hole if it kills me. <laughs> you mentioned the word completion, Frank, and I want to wrap up with this because our time's drawing short. You mentioned the word completion. And if you look back in Genesis, you know, God says he created man, but it's not good for him to be alone. So I'm going to make, and King James, a help meet for him, somebody who fits him. And mm. so the concept of completion is perfectly sound, but it works only when God's life is in the man and God's life is in the woman and God's life through the man and the woman are meeting each other's needs the way God intended. So it does work, but it doesn't have a chance of surviving if you take God out of the mix, does it? And I'm going to let you wrap us up with that. That's a, a big point, John. When I marry this woman, I'm not looking to her to meet my needs. I'm looking to God to meet my needs. Philippians 4 says, my God shall supply all my needs. But she's making a covenant with me that she's going to be trusting God to be the number one vessel he uses 
to meet my needs. It's covenant, it's choice. Well, let me just run with this as we wind this down because I'd really like to explain how this works. The moment I start looking to her instead of to God and she doesn't come across with meeting my needs, I'm gonna get frustrated. I'm gonna get angry and then we're gonna have trouble. So I always look to God. So I come home one day and I said, hey baby, and she says, hey, it's so good to have you home. And I'm sitting there going, this is so cool. She's being used by God to meet my need for love and acceptance and honor and significance. The next day I come home. Hey, baby. And she goes, get out of my face. I said, <laughs> okay. So she's not the one today. She's not walking in her faith with her God. So Lord, I'm trusting you to meet my needs. Here come the kids. Dad's home. And I go, oh, there it is. He's going to meet my needs, John. The moment I start looking to her, I'm set up for fear and frustration. The moment I look to the kids, I'm set up for fear and frustration. They may be the ones he uses, but I never look to them. Always look to him. So day three, I come home. Hey, baby, get out of my face. I look to the kids. Hey, babies, how you doing? And they go, dad, we're busy. I say, okay, where's it coming from? Here comes the family dog. There it is. <laughs> And you know what? The next day, the family dog might be out chasing a cat. Sometimes, John, it's God himself meeting my needs with this sense of his presence within me. And that's the key. I always look to him. I never look to anyone else. He might use someone else. That's the plan as he fills them with love and his own life through to me. But we can never look to the vessel, only to the source. Yeah. Well said, my friend. Well, dear friends, you've been listening to the Our Resolute Hope podcast as Frank and I have begun our conversation on, and I'll use the accurate word, on adultery. Not mm. only describing what it is, but our goal is to help prevent it from happening in your life and in the lives of those you love. So please check out our website. We invite you to look at OurResoluteHope.com. Lots of information there, all centered on the incredible truth of Jesus Christ as our very life. And so we close, as always, with this reminder from Hebrews chapter 6, that we have a hope. We are not hopeless. We are not abandoned. We are never alone. We have a hope. And that hope doesn't drift. That hope is an anchor, an immovable anchor for our souls. It's a blessed hope. It's a living hope. It's a resolute hope. So today and always, choose that hope choose Jesus. Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, he offers you himself, his own life. He wants to live his life with you, in you, and through you as you trust him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.